It's my great joy this morning to preach God's word to all of you. And my name is Godly James. I'm married to Merlin James, who is not here this morning. She's sick. You can be praying for her. And I, st- I serve as one of the staff members in this church. And I oversee the kids' ministry. And most of you have seen me downstairs. Um, Thank you so much for coming, and if you are here for the first time, we are so happy that you are here. And I hope that this time would be a great time of blessing from God's Word. Also, I would like to take this opportunity to thank God for all of you for your prayers for me and my wife. Since the time we have come here till this day, your prayers, your love, and your encouragement has held us so well. Thank you so much. It's a great privilege to serve in this church with all of you. And this morning, we are going to answer a very important question of our lives. And that question is, who is our hope? On whom do we hope? That is a question that we're going to answer this morning. And we're going to see it from the lenses of Psalm 146. I would like to jump to the main point of my sermon this morning. And my main point is, hope not in man, but hope in God. Hope not in man, but hope in God. As you see, this Psalm 146 is a psalm of praise. And this psalm belongs to book five of the book of Psalms. The book of Psalms is divided into five books. And Psalm 146 belongs to the fifth book. As the book of Psalms comes to a close, we see the climax is full of praises to God because of who He is. So Psalm 146 can be called a praise psalm because it tells to praise God for who He is. We do not know who wrote this psalm. And we don't know what is the occasion of this psalm. But we can see that these psalms were used as daily prayers at some point of the synagogue services of worship. But nevertheless, God in his sovereignty has given this psalm to us. This beautiful psalm to us to read and to think upon it. This psalm starts and concludes with a call to praise. And the call to praise are the book ends of this psalm. If we come to verse 1, it says, Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. The psalm starts off by giving out the call to praise God, about whom we will see soon, which sets the tone for the entire psalm. And then the psalmist is calling himself to praise the Lord. The psalmist first gives the call and then he declares his resolve that he will praise God. And he's inviting himself, his innermost self, his whole being to praise God and adore God. In verse 2, I will praise the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praises to my God while I have my being. He is telling the people that I will praise this God who is my God, I will praise him as long as I live. 
I don't know how, how long is my life, how short is my life, but I know one thing, that I as, I, as long as I live, I'll praise this God. And I will praise this God as long as I exist, if it is this life or the next life. And he can say this because he has a personal relationship with this God, the Yahweh God. And that is the call he's giving to all of us. And we this morning have been answering that call. We have been worshiping God through singing, through reading his word, through thinking about him, through praying, and now we are hearing God's word. After calling out people and, and declaring his resolve, the psalmist is going to answer the question which I just raised. Who is our hope this morning? Who should be our hope? And that brings to my first point. I just have two points this morning. The psalmist first tells who should not be our hope. And he says in verse 3 and 4, Do not put your trust in man because he is not trustworthy. Do not put your trust in man because he is not trustworthy. Verses 3 and 4. Put not your trust in princes, in a son of man in whom there is no salvation. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth. On that very day, his plans perish. The psalmist tells us not to put our hope in man. And he uses two words to describe man. Princes and son of man. So he wants to say, whether man be influential, he be powerful, he be of authority, whether he be greater than you, or whether it be any man, don't put your hope in man. Whether he be great, whether he be small, anyone. Man is not to be hoped for. And if, the, and if the writer of the psalm is David, this call comes from a prince. We, we, we don't know if he's the one who's, who has written, but if he has, he's the one who has written the psalm, this call comes from a prince. And then he says, put not your trust on man. But what does David mean by that? He says, put not your trust in man. Is it meaning that I cannot put my trust in my wife? Does it mean that I cannot put my trust on my fellow church members? The psalmist means here to say, do not put your faith, your confidence, your dependence, your reliance, your significance in man because of who he is. And he also means to say that man is not worthy of our trust in terms of our salvation and eternal hope. On the day when me and my wife got married, we exchanged our vows. And we said, trusting in God, I would cherish you, I would love you, I would take care of you till the end of our lives. We'll trust in God. And I do trust my wife, and she does trust me because we take those words for real, and we do love each other. But we are highly mistaken if we start putting our confidence and dependence on each other. And it's because of who we are. And that's what the psalmist says. He gives two reasons why we should not put our trust in man. The first reason, verse 3, man cannot save. It says in verse 3, put not your trust in princes, in a son of man in whom there is no salvation. The first reason is man is not capable of saving. 
Here in this context, the word salvation means to deliver someone from any kind of trouble or to help someone in need. And if David is a writer of this psalm, he, has, he is a person who has fought battles. He has, he has won battles for his people. And he says, if he is saying it, do not put, in, put your trust in man because he cannot save. And then he goes on to say in verse 4 why he cannot save. In verse 4 he says, man will die. Because man will die, he cannot save. And that's what we see in verse 4. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth. On that very day, his plans perish. We, we don't like to hear that, right? We don't like to talk about death. But the Bible says, we all will die one day. We are not sure when. But it says, we will die. And that's why humankind cannot provide salvation for himself and for anyone. Man is man, and to the ground he will return. And then the psalmist says, when a person is no more, all of the plans, all of the words he said, all of the promises he gave, all of his declarations, it will die. With man, everything else dies. Charles H. Spurgeon, the, the great preacher, he says in this way, whatever he may have proposed to do, the proposal ends in smoke. Man's ambitions, expectations, declarations, and boastings all vanish into thin air when the breath of life vanishes from their bodies. And Psalm 103, verses 14 to 15 says, man is, is like dust. He's like grass that flourishes, and when the wind passes away, it's gone. So the Bible clearly says, man will die. Hence, he cannot save. Do not put your trust in man. Right? A question can rise, how does death enter human race, right? How does death enter our system? And the answer is pretty clear in God's word. When we come to the first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis, in chapter 1, we see God creates the world. He creates the universe and all that is in it with the power of his word. And he also creates man. He's the crown of his creation. He says it is very good. He creates man so that he can enjoy the eternal fellowship with man. He blesses them. He says to them, be fruitful and multiply and rule over this earth. And he places them in the Garden of Eden and he says, enjoy every fruit of the tree Except, except for the tree that stands in the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You shall not eat of that fruit. The day you eat of that fruit, you will die. That's, the, that's God's commandment to the man whom he created. But when you come to chapter 3 of Genesis, Satan comes, the serpent comes, he twists God's command, and he... And he just presents it in such a way that man sins. He plucks the fruit. He eats it. He disobeys God. They have sinned against God now. And they now stand guilty of high treason against the holy, righteous, creator God. And when we come to chapter 3, we see God is coming to curse them. And especially in verse 19, 
there we see, by the sweat of your face, these are the words of God cursing man, by the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to the dust you shall return. God pronounces the curse of death over humankind because man sinned against the holy God. Therefore, every human being who has been born in this world since Adam and Eve, they have been born as sinful human being worthy to die, condemned to die. That's why Romans 5 verse 12 says, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin and to death spread to all men because all sinned. Every human being being born into this world is a sinner and he or she enters into this world with a name tag. I am a sinner and I will die. That's how man enters into this world. Therefore, man is helpless. Every human being is untrustworthy. He is not worthy of our hope and trust because he has sinned against the holy God and God has condemned man to die. Where is our hope this morning? Is it in man who cannot save because he will die? We human beings sometimes tend to be close to people who, are, who we think are greater than us, more superior than us, and we try to be friends with them and we boast about it. Or sometimes in, in some other cases, we human beings think, I don't need anyone. I am sufficient. I can take care of my life. I've gone through very tough situations. I am strong. Or in some cases, we fear man. We do work. We, we please man. Whatever be the case, God is telling us this morning to stop trusting in ourselves or in anybody else because every human being is destined to die. Because every single human being who has been born into this world has sinned against the holy God and thereby stands condemned and guilty and helpless. Do not trust in man. Do not trust in yourself because man will fail you. He will disappoint. Do not believe these words because I am saying it to you. I am also just a man like you. I am also condemned to die. I am a sinful human being. I, you cannot trust me with these words. Trust these words because God says these words to you. Do not trust in man. I will... I'm just remembering about an incident that happened in my life last month. Those who are close to me know that I have the fear of flying in an airplane. I really fear flying. And God gave me an opportunity to, go to, the, to actually go to the United States. And that was my first trip, like 14 hours. And I was scared. I was scared. The moment I saw the plane and the next 14 hours, I was like, man, what's going to happen? I got into the plane the plane took off, it's in the cruise altitude, and then all sorts of thoughts come into my mind. If the wing breaks out, what's going to happen? <laughs> if the engine fails, what's going to happen? If this pilot, he's going to commit suicide and ditches this plane, he's going to kill me. <laughs> and then I have these kind of thoughts. No, I'm flying, in a, in, I'm flying with an airline that's one of the best in the world. 
And because it's one of the best in the world, it should have best air, airplanes. And if it has best airplanes, it should have the best pilots. So I'm safe. That was how I was thinking during the flight. And I reached the U.S., stayed there for seven days, had a wonderful time with my friends, came back. And while coming back, I had the same fear. But this time I had Jason Barris with me. And the same thing happened. As the flight took off, I again became uh, uh, stressed and this, what's going to happen? And all the time, I'm looking at Jason. And my hope is coming from there because I'm thinking he's the elder of Redeemer Church of Dubai. He's my boss. He is with me. And hence, nothing is going to happen. But there was one point where the plane started giving some weird noises. And I looked at Jason with a helpless face. And you know what happened? He also looked at me just like that. And I was scared. And as I read this psalm, I am convicted today that my trust was in man. Do not hope in man. Because that will not take you anywhere. And that brings us to the good news this psalm offers to us. That is my second point from verses 5 to 10. Put your trust in God because he is trustworthy. Put your hope in God because he is trustworthy. In verse 5, the psalmist says, Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God. The psalmist here is saying, the one who trusts God is blessed. And he is giving a description of God that we don't see normally. Normally we see the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But here we see he's called the God of Jacob. Why? Because Jacob is a great example of a person whom God himself chose to teach to not be self-reliant, but be God-reliant. Jacob is a person whom God already chose in his wisdom that he's going to be the bearer of my covenant, which I made with Abraham and Isaac. And he very well knew that who Jacob is. He's a self-willed man. He, he is very confident of himself. He's self-reliant. He's cunning. He's scheming. And we see in, in the book of Genesis what he does. He cheats his father. He cheats his brother. And he has to leave his house in a hurry. And he goes to his uncle's house, Laban. When he sees his uncle, he's a great match for him. And he still trusts in his own methods to make his gains. But God, in his mind, had chosen to teach the same Jacob that do not trust in yourself, but trust in me. As he's coming back to his father's house on the way, he is reaching the boundaries of his brother's kingdom. And he knows that Esau will still remember what I did to him. It will be still fresh in his mind. And he's still starting to scheme in his mind. He sends gifts, but the response he gets is kind of scary. And then what, is, what, what, what does he do in Genesis chapter 32? He's at the bank of the fort of Jabbok, and he sends everyone, and he remains. And here comes God's time to train this guy to trust in God. God comes, approaches him. They have a fight. They fight for long, desperate hours. 
And here Jacob is holding on to God and saying, Lord, I will not let you leave. You have to bless me because for him, he's afraid of Esau. He wants the divine protection from God. But God has other intentions. God holds on to him so that he understands that he is weak. He is unable to trust himself. He is weak. And God teaches him that great lesson, not to be self-reliant, but to be God-reliant. And on top of that, God lamed him. And that becomes a perpetual, strong reminder for Jacob all through his life that he should not trust in himself, but trust in God. And so the psalmist says, blessed is the one who trusts in the God of Jacob. And then he gives us some reasons why we should be trusting in this God. The same God who taught Jacob to trust in him, the same God is today revealing to us through his word that we should be trusting in God. And let's look at what God has to say. We have to trust in God because of who he is. We have to trust in God because of who he is. Verse 6, he is the creator God. We see that in verse 6, who made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them. The God of Jacob is the creator God. He made this entire universe and all that is in it with the power of his word. He brings order out of chaos. He created Adam through the, from the dust of this earth and Eve from the ribs of Adam. And in those days, there were a lot of pagan gods. There were a lot of other creation accounts that were making rounds. But the psalmist clearly says, the Yahweh God is the creator of this world. If we come to Psalm 95, verses 3 to 6, we see there, For the Lord is a great God and a great God, king above all gods. In his hands are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands form the dry land. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. He is the creator of this world. He is the creator of you and me. And that's why we need to trust this God. He is a creator God. And that brings us to the second nature of God in verse 10. He is the everlasting king. It says, the Lord will reign forever. Your God will Zion to all generations. The God of Jacob, who is the creator, who created everything, he is also the one who rules everything. Because this creation is his. We are his and hence, he has to rule over us. He is the one who, who goes to Adam and Eve after the sin and curses them, and thereby changing the initial perfect uh, creation order. He is the Lord over everything. He is a judge over everything. He is present everywhere. He observes everything. He is the one who holds the oceans in his hands and weighs the mountains on a scale. He is the one who sustains and takes care of everything, who feeds the birds of the air. He is the king whose throne is in heaven and whose footstool is this earth. As Isaiah says in 66 verse 1, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. God is a creator God. God is the ruler of this world. He creates us. He rules over us. Do we see him as a creator? What kind of a God do we think of in our minds this morning? 
Do we see him as our ruler? Are we thinking of God in terms of our own thinking? Or are we thinking of God in terms of what the Bible tells who God is? Man is the creation of this God. And God is the ruler of our lives. Therefore, we should hope in this God. And that brings us to the third nature of God. He is a creator God. He is the everlasting ruling king. And that God is also a personal God. And that we see in verses 6 to 9. Verses 6 to 9, we see how this creator God, the God who rules, he is interacting with his people. We see from verses 6 to 9 how he is involved with his people. We see that God is mindful of his people and we see that God is getting involved with the people of Israel because it says, blessed is the one who trusts, who helps, who, who, who considers God as his help, the God of Jacob as his hope. And we see from verses 6 to 9 a list of ways God is dealing with his people. And we can see four kind of ways God deals with his people. God reveals himself to people. In verses 6, we see the first one. He keeps his promises with his people. In verse 6, the last part we see, who keeps faith forever. The God who made the promises to the patriarchs. The God who told Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that I will give you the land. I will give you an offspring. He keeps his promise. We see Jacob is the only patriarch who goes to Egypt. After his time, we see that the people of Israel are led into bondage. For 30 years of slavery in Egypt. But God uh, brings them out of that bondage. And he brings them to the wilderness. And we see there God is making them to wander for 40 years. But God brings them to the promised land at the end of those 40 years of wilderness wandering. And that time, after conquesting the countries, the lands, the promised land, Joshua says in 21 verses 45, not one of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel has failed. All has come to pass. The God who creates, the God who rules, he keeps his promise to his people. And he keeps his promise. And then, in, then we see in the next few verses, God sustains his people. In, in verse 7 onwards, we see a list of people who are weak, who are, who are burdened, who are sick. God takes care of them. We see in verse 7, who executes justice to the oppressed. And we see that clearly in the life of Israel. God saw the bondage of the people of Israel. In Egypt, he had mercy on them. He heard their cries. And God came and rescued them. He executes justice by bringing his people out of bondage and by sinking Pharaoh and his army. He executes justice to the oppressed. And then we come to the next part in verse 7, who gives food to the hungry. God is the one who provides. And that we see very clearly in the life of Israel. God is the one who brought them out of Egypt and he provided for them. He gave the bread from heaven and he fed them so well that we see in Exodus chapter 16. God gives food to the hungry. He, he fed his people Israel. 
Then when we come to verses 8, there we see the Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. We see that the people of Israel, they were, they were burdened, they were troubled, they were sick, they were weak because of the taskmasters who were making them to work hard. But God hears their cry. The God who's a creator God who rules over them, he comes down, he sees them, he hears their cry and brings them out of that. God lifts those who are burdened and those who are bowed down. And in verse 9, we see another two kind of people. The Lord watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless. The people of Israel were, were, were sojourners in Egypt. They were sojourners in the wilderness. And how did God save them? In the Egypt, God sent plagues on the people of Egypt, but God kept his people safe. In the wilderness, those who came to attack the people of Israel, he killed them, he smote them, he, he attacked them. But God kept his people safe. And in the wilderness we see God is protecting them by the, through the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of, night, of fire by night. And then we see when he gives the Mosaic law, he has special provisions for those who are sojourners and those who are widows and fatherless. And if we come to Psalm 68 verse 5, we see God is the father of the fatherless. And protector of widows. He is a God who takes care of the sojourners and the widows. That's the second kind of way God deals with his people. He, he keeps his promise. He sustains his people. And the third one, God loves the righteous. And he hates the wicked. That we see in verses 8 and 9. The Lord loves the righteous in verse 8. In verse 9. But the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. We see that clearly in the life of Israel. In Egypt, in the wilderness, God loved his people. He had special love for his people. But those who were, who were wicked, who were oppressing his people, he killed them. And in the wilderness, we see a different change. God is having special love for his people. He wants his people to believe in him. He wants his people to trust in him. He wants his people not to grumble against God. But we see that those who grumbled against God, even if it were the people of Israel, he killed them. But he showed his love to those who trusted God, who kept his word, who believed for who God is. If we come to Numbers 14, we see the scene that how, how the spies go and spy out the land of Canaan. They come back, and we see 10 of them give a very bad report, but two of them stand for the Lord. And then we see those uh, Joshua and Caleb and Moses, they say, let's go and conquer. But these people say, no, we are afraid of those people. We are like grasshoppers in front of them. But God heard their grumbling. He destroyed them. It took 40 years instead of 40 days to complete the wilderness wandering. And those who grumbled, they died in the wilderness. But those who trusted the Lord, those who hoped in the Lord, they saw the promised land. So the Lord, he keeps his promise. He sustains. He loves the righteous, but he also hates the wicked. And that brings us to the fourth way how God, how God deals with his people. In verse 7 and 8, God delivers his people. God rescues his people. In verse 7 and 8, 
The Lord sets the prisoners free. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. When the people of Israel hear these words, they really know what the psalmist is talking. Because the people of Israel has been in bondage. They know what it means to be a prisoner. Because they were, they were in bondage in Egypt. And then God brought them out of the wilderness and then to the promised land. When they come to the promised land, the people who have been rescued by God say, we need a king. They reject the kingship of God. And God says, a king would do these, these things to you. But they say, never mind. We need a king. And God gives them a king. The first king is an utter failure. But then God brings up David. And he establishes his kingdom. And God keeps the covenant with him that you'll have an offspring who will, who, whose, whose rule is established forever. He will come. His reign is established forever. But still the people of Israel sin against God. And then we see in 722 BC, the northern kingdom is taken into exile by the Assyrians. And then after some years, the southern kingdom is taken off into exile again. But while they were still in exile in Babylon, prophet Isaiah writes these words to the exiles. See what Isaiah 42 verses 6 to 7 has to say. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will give you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. These are the words of prophet Isaiah to the people of Israel who are in exile. They are troubled. They are oppressed. They are burdened. And Isaiah says, hope-filled words. Trust in God. There is going to come a person who's going to bring you out of this. There is a future restoration coming up. There's going to be a time when, this, when you guys who are prisoners will be loosed, when you'll be freed. There will be a time that's going to come when a person will come and remove the blindness of your eyes. The blindness that has been caused by unbelief and sin. And many years later, when we come to the New Testament, when we come to Luke's Gospel, chapter 4, verses 16 to 19, we see Jesus saying these same words again. Luke chapter 4, verse 16 to 19. We just read that this morning. And it says, And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, and, and he will recover the sight of the blind. To set a liberty those who are oppressed. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll. And gave it back to the attendant. And sat down. And all the eyes were fixed on him in the synagogue. And he began to say to them. Today. This scripture. Has been fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus is quoting from Isaiah 42. And he says. This day. The prophecy that was made years back by prophet Isaiah about restoration, about the prisoners being freed, about the blind seeing, it is fulfilled in me. God who is there from eternity, 
the God who created the whole universe and all that is in it, that same God came down and dwelt among people. He is Jesus Christ. He is the one who all the patriarchs were looking forward to. He is the one all the Old Testament prophets were talking about and he is the one who all the Old Testament prophets were talking about. He is the one who all, all the Old Testament saints were thinking about. They were eagerly looking forward and the one whom they were looking forward has come. And he is Jesus Christ. This Jesus Christ is the creator. We see in Colossians chapter 1 verse 15 to 7. He is the one for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth. Invisible and visible by the thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. He is the creator. Jesus is the creator. He was there when the world was created. And he is also the one who is the king who reigns forever. He is the one, he is the promised king who was promised to David. The offspring who was promised to David, whose rule will be established forever. And when we come to Matthew chapter 1, we see in the genealogy of Christ, he is the son of David. He is the creator, he is the everlasting king, and he is also the redeemer. Jesus, who is the creator and also the everlasting ruler, came into this world at the fullness of time, took the form of man to be the redeemer of sinful human beings like me and you. To save sinful people like me and you. We sinful people have, are already condemned because we have sinned against the holy, righteous God and our destination is death. We are going to die. But this holy God is also a loving God. He's, he loves us by sending his son for us. He descended into this world for sinful people like us. He lived a life like us except for sin. He did many signs and wonders and he proved that he is the son of God. Finally, he suffered for us. He bled. He was spat upon. He was mocked. He was stripped. He was beaten. And finally, he was nailed on that cross for our sake. He took our place. He took our place so that we who are prisoners to sin, we who are prisoners to death, we be saved. We who are blinded by our sin, we be saved. He took our sins on himself and paid the penalty in full. He appeased, he satisfied the wrath of God which we were supposed to receive. He takes us out of our post and he stands in our place and says, God, I am the one. Let the wrath of God come on me. Let them have salvation. He died and he was buried. And on the third day, God raised him up, defeating sin and death, making the way of salvation for us. And Jesus' death on the cross and his resurrection brings a lot of blessings to us. He, his death and his, and his raising up, it opens a new way and access for us to God. A new access between man and God. Man who is sinful, he cannot, he cannot stand in the presence of God on his own righteousness. But Christ, he became sin for us and he became God's righteousness for us so that we can have a relationship with God. 
by his death, he freed us. From being slaves to sin, today we are children of God. And we are heirs to his inheritance. By his death, he gave us the greatest blessing, the gift of eternal life. The gift of eternal life after death. That solves the greatest problems of our life, the sin problem. Do not trust in man, but trust in God. Because when man dies, every promise, every plan, every thought, they die along with him. But when Christ died, every word he said, every declaration he made, every promises he said, it was fulfilled. And that's why on the cross he says, it is accomplished. That is our Lord. A person who trusts in Christ, his life doesn't end with the death of this world. He or she gets forgiveness of the sin and eternal life after death with God. But who does but those who do not put their trust in Christ, their sins are not forgiven. They will not get eternal life. They're damned and they're condemned to eternal hellfire. Their life ends with their death in this world. My friend, if that's you this morning, I plead with you to stop trusting in yourself or anything else for the forgiveness of your sins. Repent and confess and put your faith in Christ who defeated sin and death and your sins will be forgiven. Stop trusting in yourself or in your work or anything else in this world for the salvation of your soul. Trust in Jesus and you will have eternal life. O Redeemer Church of Dubai, where is your hope this morning? Is it in God who is a creator who is the ruler, who is the redeemer of our lives? Or is it in yourself or anything else that perishes and that cannot save you? When you are faced with sickness, pain, and trials, when you are treated badly, when you, when you lo- lose your job all of a sudden, and when you are confronted with sinful thoughts, when you're prone to fall, whom do you look to? Is it in man? Is it in yourself? Or is it in God? Do not hope in yourself, but hope in God, who is the creator. He is the sustainer and the deliverer of your life. Or when everything is going on well in your life, when you have a good job, when you're doing well spiritually, when you have a good health, when everything is going on well, still, whom do you trust? Still, whom do you hope in? Do not Put your hope in man or any other thing this world has to offer you. Trust in God. Look to God first and hope in him alone because he will never fail you. God has given us the life, a new life, eternal life, where we will see God face to face. Where there will be no death, there will be no sickness, there will be no pains, where there will be no troubles, no temptation. It will be a beautiful life with God where we will see him and worship him in his glory. So do not fear trials and temptations and sufferings in this life and even death. But hope in God and live your life now in light of the eternal life God has promised to you. Do we really know who God is? Do we really know who we are in the presence of God? Do we really understand our need for God? Know who God is. Know his glory. Know who he is. 
Know what he has done for us. Know who we are. And let's trust in him alone and praise his name forever. Those who hope in God, they are blessed. And they are loved by God. They praise God for who he is and will sing praises to him now and forever. Let's pray to that end. Our Lord, we thank you for who you are and what you have done for us. We thank you, Lord, for reminding us who we are and our need for you. God, we pray that give us your strength to not hope in ourselves or in any man or anything this world has to offer us. Lord, give us grace to fix our eyes on you and to hope in you alone. Help us to live this life in light of the eternal life you have offered us graciously. We ask this in your name. Amen.